This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by David Elliott, but perhaps more importantly, also Oxford, his dog. How are you guys doing? Uh, I'm good. Oxford is uh, spazzy, but good. That That is good. Uh, I saw right as I got in, we were scheduled to record, and you immediately saw me and ran outside with the dog to throw the frisbee around. So I tried to get him a little bit of exercise before we started this so he doesn't eat the chess pieces off the chessboard. Yeah. Right. So if you have been listening to the last couple episodes uh, with Dave, we have been going over some of the history of the Peninsula Pulse. Uh, as I have transitioned into the arts and entertainment editor position at the paper, uh, the goal for this is for us eventually to talk about what's going on and maybe relate that to how things got started and what was going on back when Dave first started The Pulse. But because uh, we are currently sitting in January the, the or February now, uh, in, in the winter months of a global pandemic, there just isn't a lot going on. Uh, and so we decided to use uh, these first couple of weeks to kind of go through the history of The Pulse, which I'm, I'm very excited about hearing. And I've really enjoyed you know learning what i've learned so far uh the first episode we talked about the origin of the pulse last week we talked a a little bit about where stories were coming from and how you were were mining these stories today i'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, the next steps so what was going on in the first five years so dave after after the first issue was published where did things go from there ah where did they go um we made another issue the next week, or actually every other week at that time. We were printing about 10 issues a year. We started the week of right before Memorial Day, and then we did every other week into right at, until, and I guess we can figure out the time. I can't even remember. It must have been after Labor Day, just about to Fall Fest. So. Right. So back then, was it really just like, let's make an issue, then make another issue, and just keep going? Or were there goals or plans of like, we're going to do 10 issues this year, then we're going to do 15? How did that kind of break down? We had the plan of every other week. And we were going to do that as long as we could and then add if we were able to do more. Um, I believe we did 10 the first year, 11 the second, and then maybe 14 the third. So it was a slow progression that way. And it, it did cover two weeks. And now we're in a, obviously in an every week thing year round. And that was just basically Memorial Day till a little after Labor Day. Right. So, so you were really entrenched in the summer months when things were, were really happening. I, I suppose that things did happen in the off months when you first started as well, but not nearly to the same extent that they are today. Is that a correct assumption? Uh, absolutely correct assumption. I mean, we, as we've talked about before, we were entertainment publication. And even in a pandemic, it's not that different than what winters were for us when we first started the publication. They're just We were new to the area, so we didn't know. Well, we weren't new, new. We just were new to the season of winter. And when you don't know a lot of people it's pretty isolating so you end up spending a lot of time with your own thoughts and thinking a lot so it's instead of actually talking to other people so as we got to know more and more people and had dinner with others and set up kind of a potluck kind of dinner thing where you could visit and hang out with more people and learn more about the community we learned about more artists and more entertainment and that stuff but it took time to really get those roots going so I admire what you're doing for it with right now with the pulse you have access to so much more than we did we didn't go to the winter and printing issues in January until actually January of 2002 was our first winter when we published 
That's not that's not that far after. The first issue was printed in 96. Okay. Um, we came up with the idea in 95 and spent the winter of 95, 96 planning everything and then published our first issue in 96. So that's not that's not too many years after getting started moving into doing a winter issue. Now, were you were you publishing year round at that point or was that just the first time that you had published in the winter? That was the first time. So we actually stopped publishing in October of 2001 and then started up again in January of 2002. Okay, so still that break. Go, yep, we decided to go year-round at that point. Gotcha. Now, in the in the winters of those first couple of years, were you using that time to start coming up with story ideas and banking things, or was that really just time away, uh, it, like that isolating time away where there wasn't you know anything happening? There wasn't a lot of banking stories, as we like to call them. For those of you who don't really understand what banking means, it means we'd write a whole bunch of stories ahead of time and then put them into a catalog and save them and then pull them out when needed. We didn't do that. I mean, we did do that with some kind of, we had some travel pieces in the early days of the Pulse in the first couple of years. So when people went away from the winter, they'd come back and they'd write those stories for us. But we actually didn't get them much ahead of time. We got them right on deadline all the time. Right. So the, the first five years are, are limited runs, uh, mostly in the summer. And where was all of this happening? Did you have an office at the time or were you were you meeting in different places? Where were you at? So we were in a small little, we were on Juice Mill Lane up in Ellison Bay. Um, we rented what was, had been a garage that was transitioned to a house. So it had big barn doors that kind of exited out and then uh, one entrance. It had one bedroom and a, one bath and a small kitchen kind of efficiency thing. So we built a separate bedroom out of bookshelves and that kind of separates us. I threw a mattress on the floor and curled up at the St. Bernard when it was cold. But my my basically my head was up against barn doors that were had no insulation in them and snow would come in underneath them. So we had to figure out a way to keep ourselves warm that way. Um, we had a wood stove and two small electric heaters, radiant heaters to keep us warm. So it was an interesting office setup in the wintertime. We had one computer and one desk. Um, at that time, there was no, we weren't developing there was no scanners. It wasn't digital photography. So we were having our photos outsourced and then scanning them in and all that kind of stuff. So it was a lot, a lot different. Um, we didn't, as we said, we didn't bank stories and we did think about a lot of stuff, but the office space was in the middle of nowhere. So it was conducive to wandering around and getting good thoughts for short stories or poems that were published in those first few years. Right. How many people were, were working on the team at that time? Um, I guess it was, uh, there was in the very beginning, it was myself and Tom. And then a friend of ours from Lawrence university came up and lived us for a little while. His name was Rushit Bat. Um, he was from India and he did a little bit of work for us. He did some writing. Um, he wasn't around too long. And then he went, he headed back to school. Um, I think I've talked about Chris Hannaway and Neil Gallagher, but they were more intermittent people. It was basically Tom and I sitting around the computer and figuring out how to make it go. And were you, were you living in the office at the same time? Oh, I mean, it wasn't. I mean, it, when you say office, we had two bedrooms, a desk with the computer and scanner on it, a small bathroom, and then the living room was a, a couch. We had a the wood stove in the corner, which kept us warm, and then a small little small kitchen, so a yeah. galley kitchen. It's funny when you when you look at big companies that got started in garages. Usually, they didn't sleep in the garage as well, but you all were were piled into the same oh, space yeah. with the barn doors and everything. So, uh, when when did that change? We've gone through a number of offices uh, throughout the years. When when did you move out of that first office? We moved out of that first office. What did we do? We moved from there to Fish Creek. So in actually, we were only in that one space for, we were there for two winters. 
um, in one summer. So 96 was when we published the Pulse out of that space, but we lived there for two winters. And then we moved into a house that was for sale in, on the bluff in Fish Creek. Had a beautiful view of the water and sat on top of the bluff, but we knew we only had about six months there. So it was a great spot. It was a lot bigger. Um, Tom and I each got our own bigger bathrooms and with en suites and all that fun stuff, but we knew it was pretty limited to a short period of time because it was going to get sold soon. Um, so again, the office there was right in another bedroom that we converted. So it was a it was actually a four-bedroom house, and we rented it with a guy named by the name of Ted Baumgarten, and he, he had the whole basement to himself, which was a huge space, and then we shared the kitchen. Hmm. And, and in terms of, of staffing, it seems like early on it was a couple members of core staff and then a lot of writers who submitted work. Uh, has that changed over time? or has there always been kind of more outside writers compared to the core staff in the office? Well, the hope is that there's always more people outside the office submitting articles and stories. Um, But as you, it gets harder and harder when you want people to actually hit deadlines and you have to pay more people and hitting deadlines and actually writing a story topic that you've suggested instead of what they come up with and they're not just sitting down and writing what they feel like writing is two different things. So it's a lot harder to get more writers when you're asking them to do assignments as opposed to just write what they're thinking. And the editorial control increases too. So our standards kept going up. I appreciated the work and it was a high standard for me at the time, but things change. Right. Well, and it sounds like, you know, as you said, as the standards go up, the the amount of issues go up. You are constantly pumping out more issues, uh, doing more, getting bigger offices, this kind of upward momentum. Tell me where you were at in year five. Like when when did you feel that things started to kind of settle into a routine and, and start to make sense? Year five. Now you're making me think of time and how those all together. So I'll do a progression. So in, sure. 90, in 96, we were in Ellison Bay. In 97, we were in Fish Creek. Um, and actually the summer of, after that summer, I moved to, I moved to Massachusetts for the winter and then returned um, in 98. And at that time, um, Tom and I found and actually roomed with Joel Bremer, and we had a house in Carlsville. Um, Tom's cousin, Amy McKenzie, owned a place right on uh, Highway 42, almost almost to Sturgeon Bay, between Carlsville Center and Sturgeon Bay. We lived there for uh, three or four weeks, and then it didn't work out. We printed a couple issues out of there, I think two. Um, and then we moved to Egg Harbor to what was called Watch Us Grow. So that was kind of a, we had fun with that because we're like, here, watch the pulse grow. Here we go. Watch Us Grow is kind of a, it's a it's a help plants grow product that was huh. put together by the Follets. And they live, they had a, a plant for Watch Us Grow underneath us. It's, it's moved south now. It's still in Door County. But we lived there for two summers. So that was 98, 99. And then in 2000, we found a place on Maple Drive in Sister Bay and lived there for a few years. And the office was in the basement of that. Oh, and the office was in the Watch Us Grow building too. We just had a, it was, that was a bigger house and had a nice big space. And we set, took basically took the whole living room over and made it our, our office. Um, Miles Danhausen, who's now my, my business partner, and he used to deliver pizza to us at that time. He actually delivered pizzas to us for those first three or four years. Yeah, Danos. Yeah, Danos. Peninsula Pizza, that's what it was first. It was Peninsula Pizza first, and then they turned it into Danos. We've talked about Danos so many times over the podcast. One day, maybe 
maybe he'll make me a pizza and I can actually experience what it was like. I, well, I think it's better to talk about it. Although the, the barbecued chicken, when I was giving him a hard time talking to him about it, that was a great pizza. I, I still have memories of the barbecue. Yeah, I, uh, I, I know I'm going to catch flack from this, but my favorite type of pizza is Hawaiian pizza. I am a pineapple on pizza kind of guy. And uh, the, the, one, the one thing that I truly, truly miss from Minneapolis is Mesa Pizza's Hawaiian pizza. I have not found a substitute yet. Is it the is it the pineapple or the Canadian bacon? It's both. Okay. Yeah, both. The problem is like I like a purely pineapple and Canadian bacon Hawaiian pizza. I don't like when you add barbecue sauce or shrimp or peppers to it. Like some people do, but that's I, I like it more pure, just the Canadian bacon. And I don't like pineapple with cubes of ham either. That's different. It's not the same. So I've I've run the gamut on all types of Hawaiian pizzas, and Mesa's Hawaiian is still number one in my heart. And I have not found a replacement. What about yet. just pineapple on pizza? Is that acceptable? It needs it needs something else. The only one topping pizza I'll do is mushroom, but but Hawaiian needs that extra because otherwise it's just like. I understand when people say they don't like pineapple on pizza because that is kind of weird, just a sweet fruit cube. But when it's offset by the umami of the Canadian bacon, <laughs> okay, I, I, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you have that. I'm not. A, I don't mind like Hawaiian pizzas that way. I think they're great. Yeah, I digress. I, I, I'm lucky now that I do have one place that will deliver to my house. It's Sunny's down in Sturgeon Bay, and they're the only. It's weird that they deliver, but like not Pizza Hut even though Pizza Hut is before the bridge and Sonny's is after the bridge. Uh, but they are kind of a lifesaver every once in a while, especially with a one-year-old running around the house. And their Hawaiian pizza is quite good. It does have shrimp, but it's quite good. How about apples on pizza? What's your thoughts on that? I've never had apples on pizza. It's not a bad idea. It, it, are you Green apples, yeah. yeah I was going to say, are you just eating. pioneering this idea, no, or have no, you had I, it? I've had it. It's good. Huh. I have never. Ha- I have had mashed potato pizza though. That's a. That's a lot of yeah. starch. Yeah, we're getting we're getting in the weeds a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're you're moving around. Things are happening around 2001, which would have been about okay, year so five. We, so 2000, we moved to Sister Bay and Maple Drive, and we that when we put the the paper out there, um, and. 2001 um, was actually Tom McKenzie's last year with the paper. Um, and prior to that, we'd actually, we'd brought in, Matt Joswick did a lot with us in years three and four. Um, but year five, he after that, he kind of moved on. Um, Dan Eggert was always around. Um, he took photos with us for years. Um, he took a few photos um, the first year. And then the years two and three, he did more and more for us. He was a great friend and still is and took pictures everywhere. And he was all over the pages of the Pulse in those first few years. So in, so I guess in 2001, we moved, we were at working out of the basement in the 138 Maple Drive. It's ZZ. It's the road that between Husby's and, uh, or not the Husby's, but the, the Bowl and, and Ace Hardware down in Sister Bay, that little spot. Right. We were just down the road from the town. So it was kind of nice to live that close. And we took over the whole basement. Seth Wessler, who was our cartoonist, and he did layout for a while for us and did the entertainment calendar. We built a room for him. We were, I guess we got in the habit of building rooms. Um, we put we put up a two by four wall in the basement of the house, and Seth lives down there. Um, Madeline Harrison joined us in uh, 2002, and her desk was situated right outside of Seth's door. So she probably could tell you some stories about that. That was, that was different. Sure. <laughs> Having Seth come out of the room in a towel every morning was, or afternoon for Seth. It was morning. It was morning for him, but afternoon for the rest. Of right. Us. Luckily we only have to deal with you doing that now. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, that doesn't happen now. Andrew. No, don't don't paint that picture for everybody. It's, no, I won't. It's not a good one and it shouldn't be in anybody's head. <laughs> 
So then, and then that, that was, so Tom left in October of 2001. He uh, followed his heart and lived, moved out to California to be with his now wife, Jill Newman. And I was doing it all on my own. Um, Roger Coons helped us out a little bit. And Madeline, now Harrison Johnson, was uh, came on board. And she, she took Tom's place as partner in 2002. And actually, the two of us worked for Open Door Communications and John Nelson that winter. And uh, we did a little bit of work with John in terms of marketing with clients and stuff, um, but then really worked hard on the pulse. The office then moved to Bayshore Drive in Sister Bay. So right downtown Sister Bay, right where On Deck is now in Sister Bay was our office. We shared it with Open Door Communications, but we were there for a few years. You asked about moving around. And then uh, I guess in, in 2003, Brad Massey approached me about doing a magazine. So we added a magazine to the mix and, in two, and we did that for a year in those offices in Sister Bay. And then we moved to Ephraim. I'm keeping going. I'm well out with the five-year mark, but no, we might as well just start ticking off all of the office boxes while we're while we're talking about it. And then we moved to Ephraim, and and we were there. It's basically across the street from the Blue Dolphin House, right uh, right next to where the the 106.9 the Lodge is now is where right. our office was. So we were there for that. We were there for six years, I think, and then we moved to Bailey's Harbor. So that's kind of the progression of the offices. Right. We finally made it. You were all over the place in Northern Door. Yeah, we were we were in you go through it. I we weren't we were never on Washington Island. So, I mean that 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 would be fun. That would be nice to be up there, but they've got a good paper, the Washington Island Observer, so we don't need to do that. Right. Um, but we've lived in yeah, we've lived I lived in Ellison Bay, Sister Bay, Fish Creek, never in Ephraim. I, they may, I guess they were always too good for me. That's probably not the right thing to say, but they're Ephraimites. They, they're they very much better than the rest of us. <laughs> um, we lived in Fish Creek, uh, Egg Harbor, Carlsville, I guess we could kind of say sure. uh, we did. And then Bailey's Harbor, never Jackson Port and uh, never Sturgeon Bay. Jacksonport seems like it would be right up the alley for the early Pulse years from what I'm understanding. Lots of smaller but kind of more scenic areas and that's still kind of what Jacksonport has today. Sure, but it, it was a little higher traffic. Like Ele- Northern Ellison Bay, I mean, we were off of NP on your way to Newport State Park and there wasn't it's hard to get there. Right. It's far from everywhere. So, around uh, let's move back to the 5-year mark. Around this time, how how did you feel the pulse was was moving? You were just starting to do some things in the off season. Staff was a little bit bigger than where you had started. Uh, how were things kind of sitting around year 5? Um it was touch and go all the time. It was how do we figure out a way to do this? And what kept a little bit of giving us no choice then other than to keep going was customers would prepay for their advertising. So we'd either have to refund them or put a newspaper out. So we put a newspaper out. And the the printers that we worked with, we always made sure that we kept them paid and they were always good to us. They kept working with us all the time. Um, we Basically, we were able to do it because we didn't borrow a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of debt. Um, other than what we accru- accrued on our own with our personal stuff. So as long as we kept our jobs going to pay for the day-to-day, the paper kept found a way to pay for itself. And then I guess in 2003, uh, because of the magazine, I had been still working as I, I was hosting at the Summer Kitchen or I was a barista at Leroy's. Actually, I wouldn't call myself a barista. I served coffee. Uh, I waited tables at the Inn of Christopher's for years, um, which is now the Boathouse. Um, so I, we all kept our other jobs for a long time. Madeline was working two jobs as well at the time. But we had high hopes. We had uh, good intentions, and the advertising grew a little bit every year. We started to put more and more systems into place, and as the more systems we put into place, the easier it was to grow. Who did you 
who did you find were coming to you for ads early on? Uh, it was a lot of friends that we would approach, and then people started to see the value in it. Um, a lot of it, as I've mentioned in a previous podcast, is that a lot of our people that readership were the service industry and the wait staff, and then that turned into restaurant owners or shop owners that you'd visit or, or purchase things from. And the more they heard your story and what you were trying to do, the more they were apt they were to advertise. Um, Tom McKenzie was the lead sales guy for a while. Uh, Madeline Johnson came in and did a lot with that and really grew it. We brought Steve Grutzmacher in, I think, in 2003 as well. Um, and then when, when the magazine started, that was just a Brad Massey um, and Sarah and myself at the, at the beginning. And that led to a lot more sales, too, because he was out there selling things. And, excuse me, the crossover led to more and more business. Steve is now the, the second name that is familiar to me that we have talked about in terms of people that I know on staff. Uh, Steve is a great guy. Um, I, I haven't got a ton of time to get to know him, but uh, we share a love for comic books. Uh, so it's always fun to see him watching uh, trailers for the latest superhero movie in the office. Um, and we, we've had some chats over the years, but I know that he, he did some writing as well for The Pulse over the years as well, some history stuff. I know that I've banked on him for some history things in the past as well. Um, um, so I'll, always, always a pleasure to, to talk to him and to see what he's writing. Well, interestingly enough, Andrew, I found out that Tom McKenzie might be spending five to six weeks here this summer. So maybe there's an opportunity for you to grill him with some questions, too. Nice. Yes, I, I am looking forward to hopefully getting to meet people that we're talking about as well, um, just to, to, to grow my appreciation for the history. Well, if you ever had a good egg, you've met Joel Bremer. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Third name. Third name that I still know. I do know Joel. Uh, good egg. A huge family tradition for my for my in-laws for many years. Coming up here, getting breakfast burritos, and then going out on the pontoon. So. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was his column? Yeah, it was very apt, ap- apropos for Joel. Sure. Yep. Good stuff. Speaking of Joel, too, uh, one thing that, you know, as as I'm transitioning and learning new things every week, uh, we had a little bit of a snafu where a piece of an article was missed in print. Uh, you had talked to me about this this morning and mentioned how you have also had the same mistake happen to you in the past, uh, and, and particularly Joel as well. So uh, a little bit of then and now learning on the on the spot is happening to me right now. Oh, and it, and Andrew, it's happened a number of times. So one, one time we printed an article and um, Microsoft Word when we were using it had would show corrections and show your would show the work to it and for some reason when it got printed it showed all the work nice so, was clippy on there oh it was a mess um, and th- so the person we wrote about was very offended because it there were comments as well about the article that got printed that should never have been public nice. um, so that so we've had that kind of thing with Joel's article I think that was year one he I don't know why it was it was called bombs away I can't remember what the article was about but we 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 said continued on page and we didn't continue any of the articles so basically it was four paragraphs and then it never finished so we had to rerun the whole thing again so it right. it, it, it happens in your case it was just it was the final paragraph and these days you can just go online and figure out the rest of it but we didn't have that back then right well and it's nice that you do have that dual readership as well well not even dual but there's a lot of different avenues in which people consume the content right so there's people who consume it mostly on social media there's people who pick up the paper there's people who read our website there's people who listen to the podcast so there's a lot of different venues for things to get caught and to correct and that kind of stuff whereas back then it was probably just you know getting reamed out over the phone and then two weeks later there's your correction well back then the audience was small enough that 
it was really just Joel really upset that his article had been cut in half because it oh, was, okay. the readership was maybe 30 people and they probably were more amused at our failures than anything else. Well, you, you had mentioned that, you know, building upon failures and, and trying to, to learn each week is, is a part of the process, you know, even still now. Oh, yeah. So. It's great. I mean, that's what's great about being weekly is that you can correct your mistake the next week. I mean, social media is great. I just hope people read beyond this headlines and actually click read article instead of commenting on a headline. Right. That I mean, we, we deal with that a lot. Uh, we made the decision to kind of pump the brakes on the news stuff on our Facebook for a little while, uh, especially as the pandemic was really hot during the summer. Just wanted to give people a chance to breathe. We've slowly been incorporating news back into our feeds here and there, but it's still just a game of, you know, trying to talk about really important issues, but do it in a way that's productive. Uh, and it's it's difficult to do that on Facebook. I hope that, and, and it's always been my hope, that the podcast helps to add context to these discussions that we have uh, and so that people are better equipped to have uh, a more healthy discourse about it out in the community. Uh, that, that was my hope with the beginning of the podcast and something that I try to do every week with the podcast. So hopefully that kind of ebbs and flows, but I can see where there are, you know, pros and cons of a greater distribution compared to how it was your first couple of years where you might not, you know, have the constant feedback loop that we do now. Right. Well, and I hope with the podcast, no one's taking clips and putting them out of context either. That's the whole other challenge. But I don't think people are taking the time yet, Andrew, to do that. So. No, I, I, I would like to see what the where the money is in a competing podcast that's just reworked Dave Elliott voice clips. Mm, that would be fabulous. Great. Right. Uh, with that, Dave, uh, is there anything else that we want to talk about about the first couple of years? In, in the next couple episodes, I feel like we're going to kind of drill into some other topics when it comes to the history of the Pulse. But is there anything else uh, that we should leave people with, uh, memories or, or anything from the first couple of years? I think there are all sorts of stories out there that'll reveal themselves over time. We can we can leave it at that for this week. All right. Well, then with that, uh, thank you so much, Dave. Thank you, Oxford, for being uh, quiet and enjoying your time with us as much as we enjoy our time with you. Uh, and I look forward to talking to you again soon, Dave. Thanks, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.